0: If you have your uh, copy of God's Word, your Bible this morning, I encourage you to open up to the book of Daniel. Uh, The book of Daniel this morning, we're starting a new series that's going to take us, uh, start this morning, take us right through uh, just before Palm Sunday. Uh, We're going to be walking through the book of Daniel together um, starting this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, just you can find one in one of the chair racks around you. I believe it is page 747 uh, in one of the chair rack Bibles. And if you want to turn there, we're going to be in chapter one this morning, and we'll be there in just a few moments. Have you ever tried to hold on to something when someone else was trying to take it away from you? Have you ever tried to hold on to something that someone else was trying to steal from you? Uh, You know, a lot of times in life, we're trying to protect things that we think people might try and take from us. Uh, We do this sometimes with our homes, you know, we're trying to protect our homes. You have locks and locks for your locks and you have doors and you have cameras and you have doorbells that look like cameras and cameras that look like doorbells and you have things you can monitor through your phone, all kinds of ways to protect the things that we have that people might be trying to take away from us. At times I was traveling this past week and I thought, you know, all the things when you're traveling abroad, you sometimes are you have to find a way to protect things that you're afraid someone might try and take from you. Right? Where do you put your money? Where do you put your passport when you travel abroad? Are you a front pocket person? Keep it in the front pocket. You think, well, that's the safest place, keep your hands on it all the time. You got it zipped up someplace. Sometimes people carry them around their neck. You know that. Maybe you're a fanny-pack person. We got any fanny-pack people. No one's going to admit that. No one's admitting that. You zip it in there. You protect it. No one's getting my fanny pack. Got my passport, my money in there. We're always trying to protect things that we think people might be trying to take from us. Uh, Our identity is one in our age that we're trying to protect, right? Uh, And especially financial information, right? People might try and take our identity, take our financial information. If you had told me 20 or 30 years ago, I don't know when it was when I opened up a bank account and got a a checkbook for the first time, really like an adult, right? For those of you under 30, these are slips of paper (laughs) that you could sign your name to and give to people like it was money, and they trusted you that it was money, no chips, no bars, nothing, nothing involved. But I remember getting a checkbook right and having this. And if you had told me when I first got my first checkbook that in about 20 or 30 years, you wouldn't be using checks... But I would have to go on a computer and convince this computer that I was not a robot before it will give me any of my financial information, trying to decipher curvy letters and everything else. I would never have believed you. But we have all kinds of ways to try and protect ourselves our identity, our financial information use a capital letter, a lowercase letter, a symbol, right? Know your mother's maiden name, the favorite vacation spot, the high school you graduated from. We have to be the generation that more people know their mother's maiden name than ever before in history. And the funny thing is, I really don't think that's that hard to figure out. But for some reason, that is the height of our encryption technology. Mother's maiden name. They'll never figure that out. But we have this that happens, and we try and protect it. And still, it doesn't always work. About a week before Christmas or so, I was looking at our bank statement, uh, our Wendy was, and we're looking at it, and I'm going, uh, are you going to Russia? Uh, Because someone is trying to convert money from our bank account into rubles, Uh, And uh, she wasn't going to Russia, and I wasn't going to Russia, so we went to the bank and talked to them and found out someone in Russia was trying to take our money and uh, use it for whatever they want. And some of you that have gone through that know that process and uh, the kind of headache that is about a week before Christmas to change all your bank accounts and change all your people that are automatic. You know, you don't realize how many people are automatically paid until you have to change them all out of your account. But we do. We protect our identity. We're trying to protect stuff all the time that we think people might be trying to take from us. We change our passwords, monitor our credit. But this morning, I want you to consider a threat to your identity that you may not think about, but is real, threatens to steal something far more valuable than your credit card number. We live uh, in an increasingly secular culture. It's in a culture that identifies as secular. God is not nearly as important, I think many of us would agree, today in our culture as maybe he was in a generation ago or a couple of generations ago. Uh, we live in a culture that is con- increasingly at times even hostile to people of faith. And so, I want to talk to you this morning about not your bank account or your financial information, but more if you're a follower of Jesus, your faith is a key part of your identity. Much like computer hackers try to steal our identity, so too this secular culture at times threatens to steal the identity of people of faith. What about your faith in God? Do you ever feel like you're trying to hold on to something in a culture that's trying to take it away from you? You ever feel like if you're a person of faith that you're trying to hold on to your faith in a culture, in a world that's trying to take it away from you? This past uh, week, I had the opportunity to travel to a conference, and it happened to be in Spain. And it was uh, a conference of European missionaries. There were about 75 different missionaries to Europe and they uh, country were there to missionaries to Belgium, to Germany, to Spain, to England, to uh, Croatia, I don't know, lots of other countries there. And the reason I went, it was kind of an unusual conference, but the reason I went is because I believe that in a lot of ways, in our context, not just in America, but specifically in New England and specifically in the Boston metro area, we are becoming increasingly a secular culture. And we're usually a couple steps behind where Europe is gone. And so I want to know, I I got an invitation to this conference called the Secular uh, People's Initiative and How to Reach Secular People, and I thought I want to know what you're doing in Europe as missionaries to try and reach a secular culture. Uh, What's working, what isn't working, because we're going to have to reach a secular culture here in our area. And it's true that uh, in Europe, even more so than here. I mean, if you told someone tomorrow, maybe you go to work and you told someone you spent the morning in church, they probably would know what you mean even if they didn't understand why you did it. Some people may have no clue. They say, What's that? What do you do there? But most of the people that I talked to that were missionaries to Europe at the time, if you said that to someone, they'd have no idea. Like you went to visit a cathedral? Like that's what you did? Like they wouldn't have a concept, many of them, of what it would be to be a believing community following Christ and attending church together. And yet it's a culture that we live in, that's coming, and that we're called to reach, but it's also a culture that if you're a person of faith can feel like it's trying to take your faith away. We all know the stories. You know the girl who grew up the star of every church play in church, winner of every Sunday school challenge, and then who went off to college and who followed Follows God with all that she had, but then comes back from university and from college and not only left her home, but also left her faith behind as well. We know the young man who follows God with all he has and then starts working and earning money and finds out he doesn't need God anymore or the young family who brings their kids to church, but then as the kids get older, things get busy, commitments get more, uh, more demanding, and they show up to church less and less, and all of a sudden, it's not as important, and it almost completely, if not completely, disappears. The person who's followed God for decades, who has something difficult happening in life, seeks advice for the latest self-help book, and then walks away from their faith. If we're not careful, our identity as a people of faith can easily be stolen by a culture that does not believe. So then here's the big question. How do you hold on to your faith in a faithless culture? How do you hold on and be a person of faith in a culture and a world that increasingly feels like it's trying to take it away from you? How do you engage and impact a culture that doesn't believe? What are we supposed to do? Christians have tried all kinds of strategies through the years. Uh, Some have tried to buy a plot of land and then move away and just surround themselves with other Christians in a compound, and that never ends well. So we live here. We live in the place where God has placed you for a purpose. But you live here as a person of faith in the midst of a faithless culture. So how do we Hang on to that. That's a question I want us to consider today, but over the next several weeks and even a couple months as we're in the book of Daniel, because that's what the book of Daniel addresses. Perhaps there's no better example in the Bible than Daniel of a person who is maintaining his faith amidst a faithless culture. Daniel, uh, who is living in the 6th century BC, the nation of Judah. And here's what happened. He's living in Judah, a nation that God had uh, put in place, given his word to in order to share that word with the nations around, the word and work to tell, to be a blessing to the world eventually. But his nation is no longer serving God. And so in 586 BC, almost overnight, another nation, the nation of Babylon, comes in, destroys Judah, and takes Daniel and a bunch of other people, but a few of his friends specifically that we're gonna meet in this passage, takes them to the nation of Babylon. And immediately overnight, Daniel has to go to learn how to live in the midst of a culture that is extremely uh, tolerant, at least supportive of his faith, even though not everyone was following, to a nation that will kill And take his life if he does not believe as they believe. And how does he maintain his faith in the midst of that culture, in the midst of that place? That's what I want us to look at this morning in Daniel chapter 1. So uh, Luis Valta is coming to read Daniel chapter 1. I want you to be able to hear uh, the whole chapter this morning. It's an amazing account of what um, what, uh, God has done. Uh, and uh, his work in the life of Daniel and these, uh, his friends here. So I'm not going to parse it up and read it in parts. I want you to hear the entire chapter of this account as
1: Luis reads it for us. A reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, And skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily a portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king." among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, And tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king." And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God.
0: Amen. Thank you, Lewis. And now that you've heard that chapter and seen all those difficult names, you can see why I asked Lewis to read the chapter for you this morning. does a great job with it. Uh, incidentally, perhaps you also picked up that uh, their diet of vegetables and water made them fatter in the flesh. Um, so that's why I don't eat vegetables very much. And I don't know if there's a theological truth there, but I'm sticking with it. Here's the story of these Daniel and these three young men. There were probably more, but we have the account of Daniel and these three young men um, that were told of this account and story. They are in a pagan foreign land. They're people of God. And how do they maintain their faith? We talk about ways that we encrypt our technology and our identity. So let me use that kind of metaphor this morning. How do you password protect your faith in a culture, in a world that may be trying to take it from you? How do you password protect it? Three things this morning, three keys this morning of how to protect your faith, how to stay faithful in a culture that's faithless. Uh, I want to talk to you about that from Daniel chapter one this morning. And the first one is this: remember that no matter who is in power, God is in control. Or let me put it this way: remember, no matter who is in charge. God is in control. No matter who's in charge, God is in control. Remember when you were a kid and you always wanted to be in charge? You know, you always wanted to be the person in charge, right? Uh, you, your parents would tell you, clean up your room, you know, and pick up your socks and do your laundry. And you're uh, one day, I'm going to be in charge. And I will decide if I will pick up my socks or clean my socks or even wear socks. I'm going to be in charge. So let me ask you this. Those of you, you're in this room, you're adults, you're grown. How many of you are in charge and nobody is in charge of you? (laughs) Wasn't that, we all dreamed of this day, right? We all thought one day I'll be in charge. One day. And we still have not reached that day yet. There's always somebody else in charge, You have a boss in your workplace. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have customers to please, shareholders to satisfy, colleagues to impress, teachers to answer to, a spouse to think about, kids to care for, laws to abide by, bills to pay. There is always someone else in charge. But here's the reality. No matter who's in charge, God is still in control. That's what Daniel knew. See, he knew that even though what had happened to him was awful, it did not mean that God was not in control. I think some of us need to hear that again. No matter what had happened to him, and even though it was terrible, ripped from his culture, family members and people he loved killed, God was still in control. And he knew this because a few years back, prior to this incident, there had been another man and his name was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was sent by God and given a word from God. And Jeremiah's word was essentially that the people of God, because they were not serving God the way that he had chosen them to, the way that he created them to, he had given them this task and responsibility to serve and worship God and show the other nations of the world by that who God is. And how to have a relationship with him. And they weren't doing it. And so God sent Jeremiah and other prophets. And he said, tell my people that because of this, they are going into exile. They're going to be taken from their land. And I'm going to allow it to happen. Did you see it in verse 2? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of the Babylonian king. The Lord gave them over. In fact, Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven, which is perhaps the most quoted verse in all of Jeremiah. Even if you don't know that reference, see if you know the verse when I quote it. It says this: "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope." Many of us know that verse. Many of us have it on a coffee cup or, or cross-stitched into a pillow in our home or something. Wonderful. But here's the thing. Here's here's the context of that verse. Remember, Jeremiah is speaking a few years before Daniel, and here's what he's saying. The plans of the Lord are great for you. They give you a hope and a future, and it's going to be wonderful, and God has wonderful plans for you, but for 70 years, you're going into exile. That's God's plan for you right now those hope in the future, it's going to happen in 70 years for you. Think about that the next time you uh, write that verse on somebody's high school graduation card. You're essentially saying, congrats, the next 70 years are going to be terrible, but see you on your 88th birthday. Things should be great then. That's the context of the verse. God's saying, I do have a hope in a future for you. But first, 70 years of exile." So Daniel knew it was coming, so he wasn't surprised by it. So just because Nebuchadnezzar was acting like he was in charge did not fool Daniel for once instance to think that God wasn't in control. And just because there are people in this world who may be in charge, and just because they may be doing things that that are not in accordance with, with righteousness and justice and all that God would want does not mean God is not in control no matter who's in charge, God is still in control. They were trying to get Daniel to, essentially what the Babylonians were doing, what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, was trying to get Daniel to believe another story. They were trying to say, look, we're in charge, and so we have the truth, and so you need to believe our truth story. They were very clever And very strategic in how they did it. They were artists, craftsmen in crafting the worldview of the people that they would take over. Here's what they would do. They would remove them from their homeland. They took the royalty and the strongest and the most well-educated because that's what you would want to keep. So they kept the strongest and, and the royalty and the most educated and the most physically fit. They removed them from their land. They brought them to their land. They taught them a new language. They changed their names. You heard them change their names, right? They changed their names from names that worshiped God. Daniel meant Elohim is my judge. Hananiah meant Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like Elohim. Azariah means Yahweh helps. And they changed their name to Babylonian names that would worship Babylonian gods. So that every time someone would call Daniel, instead of saying, Yahweh, Elohim is my judge, they would say, Belta. Uh, yeah, well, Belta I, I was going to say Belteshazzar, but that is the, another name. They would say, no, oh, Belteshazzar is right. Sorry. I thought I was mixing him up with another king. Belteshazzar. They would say Belteshazzar and it remind him, we're in charge. We're in charge. What we say is true. What we say is right. What we say your name is. What we say, who we say is God, we want to change the story, change everything. In fact, they taught them uh, the school. They said, we're going to educate you for three years. Take them out, put them in school for three years, and then we're going to test you. What did they educate them in? Not only Babylonian language, enchantment, astrology, all these cultic arts of the Babylonians. That's what they educated them in. Tried to change their entire worldview. And you and I, live in a world at times that also tries to get you to believe another story. They were trying to get you, try to tell you another story. That Forget that story you learned about God being in control. Forget that story you learned about God loving you. Forget that story you learned about all that God has done or not done. Our society would have you believe there's another story that you have to believe. Now, you are not maybe forced like Daniel and his friends. You are not maybe uh, at the threat of your life, instructed to believe it. But you, in some ways, feel implored to believe it. Maybe driven, directed, mocked, even shamed. Of course, this is the way you should believe. Everybody believes this way. If you don't believe this way, if you don't think this way, there's something wrong with you. You're not threatened the same way Daniel and his friends are, but you feel the pressure. You feel the pressure in the world and the society we live in. And in that moment, in those moments, when the world would try and implore you to believe a story different from the one that God tells, remember that no matter who's in charge, God's in control. No matter who's in charge in this world, God is in control. Second thing, if you're going to encrypt and protect your faith identity in a world that is faithless, is this, resolve to keep God's commands. Resolve to keep God's commands. Learning another language wasn't a sin for Daniel. Being called by another name was not a transgression of God's law as much as he didn't like it. Being educated in another system as much as he would not want that and didn't like it, did not cause him and make him a transgressor against God's law. But Daniel knew that there was a covenant that God had made with his people that had certain requirements and one of them was the dietary restrictions that they followed that separated them from the people around them. And so when he was asked or told that he would have to eat foods that he knew God had told him and commanded him not to eat, that that's where the line was drawn for him. I can do these other things, but I cannot do that. He's wise, comes up with a win-win proposition to try it out and test it out. He's not foolish in the way he handles the situation, He tells them to watch and test and see if God comes through, and he certainly does. He won a victory with food, but he was still captive, still has to learn the enchanter magician stuff in their schools, was still called by a name that praised a false god, but he obeyed the commands of God, even in a place that didn't. There are things that will be hard in this world, but you can deal with them. There'll be things that will be difficult in this world, but you can bear up under them. There are things you're gonna have to do. There are laws you're gonna have to obey that you may not want, you may not agree with, you may not, it may not be your choice, but you can handle it and you can do it right up until the moment one of them conflicts with the law of God. And then you know, and I know what Daniel knew, that to obey the laws of men instead of the laws of God is not wise. It's inconsistent with God being Lord. And so Daniel says, I can do all these other things. They're not pleasant for me, but they're not sinful for me. But to do that would be transgressing the covenant relationship I have with my God. We don't live in a society like Babylon right now that is threatening your life if you don't believe a certain way. But you feel pressure at times to believe a certain way. We don't have maybe food in this. Let me use the metaphor and the illustration of the food. Uh, we don't have food forced in you that you have to partake and you have to believe this way and you have to eat this way. But we do have this. We have a world that spreads a smorgasbord in front of you and says, come, Eat. It's all good. Eat what we eat. Think what we think. Believe what we believe. Come and embrace a new story. Come and, and, and understand a new way of thinking and of living. Because when you don't eat like we eat, it makes us feel uncomfortable. And when you don't eat the way we eat, it makes us feel like you're judging us. Come and eat the way we eat. Come and embrace our story. Come and live the way we live. It's a pressure on us at times to live in this way. But you have a choice. It's spread out before you. How will you live? Before I left on this trip last week, I was talking to a friend about it, and I... um, He said, he'd be praying for me, and I appreciated that. And I mentioned it was my first time ever going to Europe. I hadn't been over there before. And he said, he said, well, do yourself a favor. He said, when you're in your hotel room alone at night, he said, don't flip through the TV channels. He said, European TV is different than U.S. TV. Their standards are different. He said, so don't, don't flip through the channels when you're in your room alone at night. And I knew what he meant by that, and you know what he meant by that. And I appreciated his advice. And I think it serves as a good illustration of this, that there are, you live in a world that may not be forcing you to embrace the story, may not be forcing you at times to act in a way that would transgress God's law and hinder your walk with God. But you live in a world that says, Come, why not? Partake. Eat what we eat. Think what we think. Live the way we live. It'll be easier for you, it'll be easier for us. Doesn't it make more sense? It's not necessarily a forced feeding, it is a smorgasbord spread out in front of you. And what? will you choose to eat? How will you choose to think? What story will you choose to believe? Appreciated my friend's advice and that TV remote was in the same place when I left the room as it was when I entered the room a week before. Because we have a choice to make. What will we do? What will we embrace? How will we handle those temptations and those things that come our way? Resolve to keep God's commands. Maintaining your faith in a faithless world, one key is to resolve to keep God's commands. Finally, third, rely on God's presence. Rely on God's presence. God was present with Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Now that may sound like a pretty commonplace statement to you, but it is actually pretty revolutionary for Daniel and his friends, and here's why. Daniel is living before the cross. He is living before the the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is living before the Holy Spirit is distributed to the church. And so... At that time, there was a very particular place where the presence of God dwelt. Where was it? Those of you that have grown up in church and Christianity, where did the presence of God dwell? In the temple. Where's the temple? Jerusalem, Judah. That's where the presence of God dwelt. Where's Daniel? Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar. No temple. No priests see in that, in that time, what God had kind of made this arrangement with his people that there would be a temple of God and, and, and the temple would be among the people, and to let the people know that god 's presence was with them, that God would come and meet in the holy of Holies, and the priest system would be set up, so the priests would go talk to God, and then God would talk to the priest and the priests would talk to the people, and this whole system was set up that 's how they related prior to the cross, prior to the new testament we know as the New Testament, prior to the Holy Spirit of God being released to people. That how it worked. But Daniel isn't near the temple. Daniel's in Babylon. And yet, in verse 9, it says, God gave Daniel favor. And in verse 17, it says, God gave them learning and skill. They were in exile, but God was with them in exile. They did not have a temple, and were not able to sacrifice and worship the way they had in the past. They did not have control over anything. They were in a land where evil people were in power, but God could still work in a situation where evil people are in power, and God was still with them. When evil people seem to prosper and rise to power, we might be tempted to believe that God is not working and is not with us. He is with us. He was with Daniel and his friends. He was with Stephen when he was the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. He was, with Rome, he was with Paul in a Roman prison cell with Silas. He was with Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a Nazi prison cell in Germany. He was with Jim Elliott on a beach in South America. He is with you tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, in your workplace in your school, in your home. He's with you. See, even though we live on this side of the cross, I think we can make the same mistake of thinking, well, when the team's up here leading in music and the music's good and they're singing a song, I know, and, and it's just so good and everything feels good and they're worshiping God and everyone else is singing and there's where the presence of God is. Yep. Yep. That's true, but it's no less in your workplace tomorrow. God's presence is no less with you wherever you find yourself tomorrow. See, that's what Daniel found out, that God's presence was with him no matter where he was. So it wasn't where he was that made the difference. It wasn't the fact that he was in Babylon in a pagan kingdom that did not worship God, that was trying to crush his faith and steal it from him. God was with him, and God is with you. God is with you no matter where you find yourself. How often do you in that place where you'll find yourself tomorrow or Wednesday or Thursday afternoon Just pray and talk to God because he's with you. I know that because in Psalm 139, it says this, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. Daniel knew what the saints knew through the ages, that God's presence is with you even when evil people are in charge, even when things are difficult, even when times are hard. God is with you. you at times will be invited to partake in this world of a story that does not include God, that does not attribute anything to God, that does not worship God. If you're gonna hold on to your faith in a faithless world, you need to remember, you need to resolve and rely on God. There's only one person who's ever walked this earth and never been tainted by evil and his name is Jesus he walked this earth and was never tainted or tainted or defiled by the evil around him and he's the one we put our faith and our trust in you live in a world that at times will try and take your faith from you try and tell you a new story it reminds me of speaking a story it reminds me of toy story first movie some of you have seen that, you remember that Remember the scene when uh, Buzz is trying to get Woody to believe a different story? Andy doesn't love you. Andy doesn't care about you. And he looks down at his foot, you know, and he sees Andy, his name that was there, but it's starting to fade away. And at that moment, he's tempted to believe a story that isn't true. This world is gonna try and get you to believe a story that isn't true. That God isn't real, that God doesn't exist, and even if he did, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about anything that happens in this world, so why bother with him? This world is gonna try and get you to believe a new story, have a new name, speak a different language. If you're gonna hang on to your faith in a faithless world, and remember that who's in charge is... It doesn't matter the fact that God is in control. Resolve to obey God and rely on his presence. And I ask our team to come up, and we're gonna close out our service and respond to God's word. Who you are is not determined by where you are, but by whose you are. Who you are is not determined by where you are, but by whose you are. Listen, it's always been hard. Our age is no different, and in fact, it's not as hard as others. There is no perfect culture for staying faithful and giving a gospel witness, yet that is what we are called to do. We can bemoan or complain about our times all day, But the truth is, saints throughout history have had it far worse, and we're able to not only stay faithful to God but expand the kingdom and have even seen growth for the gospel in difficult times. Secularism did not catch God off guard. God isn't sitting up in heaven and hearing about postmodernism and saying, oh, I didn't see that one coming. I mean, it's not, it's not surprise to God that he calls you to live for him, faithful people, believing and knowing his story in the midst of a world that doesn't. You and I are not the first people called to do that thing. But it's not easy. But you'll feel pressure at times. Oh, the pressure, you'll feel, you'll feel that pressure like a, like a running back heading down the field with a football trying to get to the end zone and, and you're holding on to it and a 300-pound linebacker is heading to you and his only goal is to knock that ball out of your hand. And sometimes you're gonna feel like that's what it feels like to hang on to your faith in a world that is not faithful. That someone's just trying to knock, trying to get you to fumble the ball the whole time. And their only goal is to knock that ball out of your hands and get you to leave and believe a different story and fumble that ball. But a good running back will hold that ball high and tight and will learn to protect it. And you, in your faith, you protect your bank account. You protect your homes. You protect all this stuff. You protect your faith, remembering that no matter who's in charge, God is in control resolving to obey God's commands and relying on God's presence. No matter how bad things are here, it is not nearly as bad as what Daniel faced in Babylon. And yet God has called you to this time and this place and he's placed you here He's given you a purpose. He's put you in that workplace, woman of God. He's put you on that job site, man of God. He expects you. He's empowered you to live for him. He expects you to be a light and a hope in that place. Yep, you'll feel pressure. Yep, you might stick out. Yep, you might look different but you can do it. God has empowered you and strengthened you to live faithful to him in a faithless world so that the world may see what a person of faith is and then come to desire to know and trust this God that you trust. He's put you there to make a change. Not to be changed, A change in that place for him. Would you stand with me as we close out? We're going to sing one final song, but as we do, I just want to give you a chance to respond to God's word as the team sings. God is speaking to you. Don't wait to respond. God is speaking to you because maybe you're in this place. This is an important message, but they're all important. They all come from God's word. But as we approach this message this morning, Pastor Brian and I, as we were looking at it in the context of the world that we live in, as we were praying and thinking through what to preach and what to share with the church this year even, this book of Daniel was important to us because we recognize that you are and I am living as faithful people in a world that is increasingly hostile to people of faith. So maybe you need to come to this altar this morning as we sing this song and God and his Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Maybe you have dropped the ball. Maybe you fumbled the ball. You didn't mean to, you didn't want to, but you did. You walked away. And you didn't live for God when you know you should have. And this morning you need to come to these altars and you need to just recommit your life to God. And you need to say, God, I believe. You need to like that, that man in the gospels talking to Jesus who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, help me. Help me to live for you. Or maybe you're just facing a pressure in your school or in your place of work and you don't know how you're going to stand up under it, and you don't know how you're going to hold on, I'm telling you, God will help you hold on. God will give you the strength to hold on. And maybe you need to come to the altar this morning and just sit and kneel before God and say, God, give me strength to live out this place because I'm feeling this pressure, and I need you to empower me. You hang on to this faith. Maybe you are a parent, and you need to come and pray for your child this morning. Growing up in a world that's increasingly hostile to people of faith, and you need to come and you need to bring that child before the Lord this morning and pray for them. As the team plays, I'm going to pray, and you can come spend time at this altar, and someone will pray for you and with you as we bring these things to concerns of the Lord. Father, we thank you, God. I thank you for Daniel, not a perfect man, but a man who, in this situation, He's a man like us who's tempted and tried and yet in this situation bared up under the temptation and was faithful to you. Lord, may we also be faithful to you. May we follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ tempted like us but victorious. Lord, help us to be faithful people in the midst of a faithless world. Lead us now even as we pray, Lord. Even as we, God, come and recognize the temptations and pressures we feel. Lead us, speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name.